You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. Is the For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. That does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as branches is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the wine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the wine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and then they are burned. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I, have always, I, I also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. The word of the Lord. All right, please um, leave your Bibles open to John 15. You guys hearing me? No? Well, some you can can hear my voice, right? But um, you want me to pick up the other microphone? All right. Hey, um, oh, no, they're telling me they can hear this through the speakers, brothers. Tell me what to do. This is good? Well, you guys are not agreeing on what to do. <laughs> I can do both. Um, as with everything else um, that is wrong with the earth, you can blame McDonald's for this because they... Um, apparently are interfering with our radio frequency, so if you hear some orders for <laughs> sausage and egg McMuffins or something, that's, that's not God's voice speaking. That's... It's Holy Week. It's, good. It's, uh, it's, it's Palm Sunday. That's what this is about. Um, traditionally, uh, at churches that run according to the church calendar on this day we'll remember Jesus triumphal entry into Jerusalem riding a donkey uh, the people who recognize him as the Messiah will lay down their both their cloaks and palm branches it was very um, redolent of Old Testament imagery about the Messiah coming into Jerusalem and so uh, we're going to skip past that this morning that's John 12. We're going to go a little bit uh, further along to John 15. And, um, and this is where John 
picks up the narrative uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. In fact, he spends a whole lot of his gospel, like a really good chunk of his gospel on the last kind of 24 hours of Jesus' life. Uh, so that's where this morning's sermon will meet up with Thursday night as we pick up again the, uh, the, the night that Jesus was betrayed. But the, the whole kind of section um, John begins at, uh, in chapter 13, and uh, he just gives this really beautiful summary about how sort of Jesus' attitude and his sense of mission as he comes to the last hours of his life. So chap- uh, chapter 13, verse 1, he says, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That was the motivation of Jesus. 24 hours of his life, that night that he was betrayed and then crucified, uh, he was motivated by love. And uh, John says, as one of his very best friends, he recalls that right to the end, Jesus was motivated by love. And this had a massive impact on John. If you read through his, both his gospel, his three letters to the church, his, um, his final letter of uh, Revelation, which we're going to look at later in this year, they're all just replete with these images and themes of love. And church history tells us, this is not in scripture, but church history tells us that John was the only disciple who actually lived to an old age. All the others got murdered brutally, um, but he, was, he managed to uh, be spared. And, and the church remembers that his dying day, he would just sort of be carried around by people from his church and he would just say, uh, brothers and sisters love one another. The last kind of sermons that he could preach before he kind of ran out of steam was just telling the church to love one another, and that's because he remembered, uh, I think, um, not only Jesus' teaching in general, but um, Maundy Thursday, remember, Maundy Maundy just means, it's from the Latin, meaning new commandment, all right? So that's what that's about, and where Jesus says, I think it's in chapter 12, where he says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved. This is how everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So that really colors not only John's remembrance of Jesus' ministry, but his own ministry into, into later in life. And uh, it's also his motivation in sharing with us some pretty hard truths in this passage this morning, in chapter 15. Some pretty hard things for some of us to hear. All of it is motivated by love and a great desire for us to live joyful, abundant lives. So, that being said, I want us to begin way back. Not just way back in the first century, but uh, I want us to go to a parable, not one of Jesus' parables, but a parable that was told about 600 years before Jesus, a parable told by the prophet Isaiah. And he, speaking to the people of Israel, he, um, he, he sort of tells them a song that God sang, and it's a a parable that he wants them to understand, a parable that he wants God to use to really cut into their hearts and convict them of where they are going wrong, essentially, as God's people. So in Isaiah chapter 5, and the first few verses, it says, I will sing, this is God singing this song, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, 
He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected the yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. Parable. And in the next verse, prophet Isaiah gives them the big reveal. Verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of The plant that God delighted in He expected justice but saw injustice. He expected righteousness but heard cries of despair. This is a parable about God's love for his people people Israel, his intention for them to be this vineyard, to be this fruitful vine of blessing. And the reality that instead of producing beautiful, juicy, Grapes of blessing that would be turned into wine that would, that would show the people of the world God's favor and blessing and love. Instead of all of that, the grapes that were produced were worthless. And so in judgment, he turns the vineyard over to be destroyed. God's intention for Israel, and remember all through this series, Jesus talking about the great I am statements, you've got to know the Old Testament context for them, otherwise they, just, they don't register. So we need to go back, and this is where you want to go. This is what Jesus has in mind as he talks about being the true vine. He's going back to this picture of Israel. They were meant to be this fruitful vine of blessing. And not just any vine, it was, a, it was a, a grape vine because grapes were indicative of God's blessing. Why? I mean, grapes are good, but grapes also produce wine and wine is really good according to God. Wine is a picture of God's blessing. You remember back in John chapter two when Jesus turns all that water into wine at the wedding? John's really clear throughout his gospel. He doesn't refer to miracles. He refers to them as signs. They're they're there not just for their own right. It's not just that they ran out of wine at the wedding and Jesus did a good thing by giving it to them. It's a sign that's meant to point you to something bigger. And what he's pointing to here is that Jesus is taking these cold um, stone jars, which were there for ritual hand washing, right? The means of religious observation, And he's turning that cold stone water of ritual observation into wine, which is a symbol of God's presence and blessing. That's the big idea. That's the purpose of it. 
I mean, I'm sure everyone was happy with the really good wine that was there as a result, but the real purpose was for him to demonstrate that God is not content just for heart, sort of soulless, stone, cold, ritual observation. He wants blessing. He wants presence. That's what wine's meant to be for. And so Israel itself was meant to be this vine of blessing. And the gardener, Yahweh, planted and tended and even put a wine press in just to make, just so you know exactly what he's up to here. He's gone, he's, it's all there. The people of Israel exist to be producers of blessing. And yet, as Isaiah points out, they failed. They failed to be the blessing that they were meant to be. Grieves God's heart. He expected grapes and he got worthless grapes. He expected justice and he got injustice. He expected righteousness, that is, to live after God's own heart, to do the things that God does, to think the thoughts that God thinks, to express the love that God feels. That's what to be righteous means. He expected righteousness, but instead he heard cries of despair. He heard the poor being oppressed by the rich. So he judges Israel. They failed, failed to produce. We've got this um, peach tree at our house. In fact, we've got tons of fruit trees at our house, which is weird because our backyard is about the size of this stage, but we just, we've got it all jammed in there. And this one peach tree is uh, beautiful. You know, it, it, every springtime it comes around, it blossoms beautifully, Be- these beautiful pink blossoms. And the last two years, It has blossomed that beautifully and then all the blossoms have fallen to the ground and it hasn't produced a single peach. Up until a couple of years ago, it was weighed down with fruit. We were just giving it away. like The kids would take bags of them to school and give them out. The last two years, it's produced nothing. Now, if you go and look at it now, it's just this empty stalk of a tree. So it is with Israel. They were planted to be a blessing. They showed signs from the beginning of these, the blossoming that God intended, and then nothing. And it's into that context, 600 years later, that Jesus comes along, and in John 15, verse 1, says, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. Thinking back to the parable of Isaiah. Father is the gardener. He is the vine dresser. He has set out his vine to be a blessing. And Jesus says, I, I am. I am the true vine. Saying two really big things there. First of all, I am. Which is God's own name. Yahweh. I am. And then the true vine. He is the true Israel. Jesus is saying, not only am I God, 
faithful God, but I am Israel, faithful Israel. Everything that Israel was meant to be, I am. Claims both of those things in that one short sentence. I am the true vine. Everywhere that Israel failed, I am fulfilling all righteousness. Everything that Israel was meant to be, representative of God, made in his image, reflecting his love, living righteously, doing the works of God. That's me, Jesus says. This, by the way, is why we can even have a Good Friday this week. The only reason that Jesus could die on the cross and satisfy the wrath of God and forgive all people is because he was both the I am and the true vine. If he's just God, then he can't be our representative. He can, he can really wish us all the best, but he can't die in our place. And if he's just the true vine, then he doesn't have the power to forgive, much less be raised from the dead. But as the I am and the true vine, he can die in our place for our sin and be raised triumphant. This is everything. This is our whole theology right here. I am true vine. Massive statement. And not his last one in this passage. So let's keep reading, all right? That was verse one. The question is, if Jesus is both Yahweh and the true Israel, where does that leave us? Is there any room for us? Do we have any purpose? The answer is yes. Verse five says, I am the vine You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Who are we? We're the branches. There's a place for us. God is the vine. Jesus himself is the true vine. You can think about it, I guess, to switch the metaphor a little bit. The vine is like the trunk, right? The trunk of a tree. And we are branches connected into the trunk. Paul will talk about this in Romans chapter 11, which is a a confusing chapter, but basically is saying that even us Gentiles who weren't part of the original vine that um, that, that God purposed to bless the world with, we have been grafted in to the main vine. Even though we were wild olive shoots, like that that olive tree out there, we were just a whole different thing. They were grapes, we were olives, but God in his grace through Jesus' death on our behalf has grafted us in. I don't know much about gardening, but I know there's things you can do with, you know, like grafting little bits into, ask Siva, he'll tell you about it afterwards, okay? So there's, there's this thing that God does to plug us in to the true vine. That's what Jesus says here, I'm the vine, You are the branches. I'm the faithful, true Israel, and you have been connected in. Connected into the vine, into the trunk, and therefore able to produce much fruit for God's glory and the good of the world. Knowing all the time that as branches, we can do nothing disconnected from him. A branch that's not connected to a trunk, is firewood, right? So just remember that. But connected to the trunk, we can produce much fruit. 
The one who remains in me, Jesus says, and I in him produces much fruit and do nothing without me. It's quite a thing to say. I mean, he's already claimed to be God and the true Israel, so maybe it's not a stretch, but to say, you know, like there is nothing, you can do nothing without me. Quite a claim. I've come to get over hopefully most of my pride and get to the point where I say, yeah, you know what? I agree. I agree. Without him, I can do nothing. Nothing of any worth. Nothing that's fruitful. Nothing of eternal significance. You know, I just, I tell you what, I just want to spend as much of my life, the life that I've got left, as much of that life that I've got left, I want to spend in a place where I can say, without you, I can do nothing. That's where I want to spend my life. Where I just know in the very fiber of my being, if Jesus isn't here in this, it's pointless. That's what I want to spend my life doing. Talk about kingdom prayer. Like every prayer meeting you go to or every pray that, prayer that you pray, that, that is the essence of our prayer time, right? If Jesus isn't in it, then what are we doing? Walking around, touching chairs? Like it's ridiculous. It's, it's cra- crazy stuff. Spend time on your knees pleading with God to deliver your loved one from cancer or son and daughter from sin or, I don't know, whatever you pray for. It's a complete waste of time. Like, the, the, like it is the definition of a waste of time. Unless Jesus is the true vine. Without me, you can do nothing. Without me, your prayers achieve nothing. Just speaking into the ceiling. I just want to spend my life more and more, just more and more of my time in a place, in a posture, in an activity where I can say, without you, I can do nothing. What does that look like? If, if, that's kind of, if, that, if that is triggering something in you and you're like, yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. That sounds like a good use of the next 40 years, 50 years, 70 years of my life. Well, back it up a bit. Read 4, verse 4 to 5. He says, remain in me. Other translations say abide in me. Remain, abide, same thing. Live, live in me, abide in me, remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. One who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing That's what it looks like. You are determined to live your life, making all of life all about Jesus. What does that look like? 
looks like remaining. Remaining connected into the vine, plugged into the vine. It means taking like the, I don't know, again, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a horticulturalist, but I'm just thinking like if you're a branch, like taking the, the sinews of the, the fiber of your branch and plugging them deeply into the vine, securing yourself to the vine doing everything you can to remain connected to the vital sap of the vine. Remain in me. Abide in me. Live in me. It's a daily thing. It's a hourly thing, a minutely thing, right? It's an all-of-life thing. can't remain in Jesus in a kind of set and forget kind of way. It requires a constant recommitment, re-engagement. Now, if you are up for that kind of life, then you need to be ready to be pruned a little bit. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he, that's, that's Father, the gardener, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. I don't know what it's like to be a branch, but I'm guessing pruning is not the most fun. I've done a bit of pruning in my time. Normally I go way overboard. Like I tell Renee I'm going to go out and do some pruning and she comes out later and most of the tree is missing just because I, I love sawing stuff up and axing stuff down. And so I get a little bit over, over committed to the pruning thing. Luckily the father is more skilled. He's a vine dresser. He's a gardener. He's a professional. The point is that if you want to be a productive branch connected to the vine you not only need to be remain connected to the sap right remain plugged in to the trunk but you need to be pruned this is just the way things work again i went to Siva's place recently uh, his entire like the entirety of his in, his house his backyard his front yard his driveway like everything is just covered in plants guys a gardening beast and um, I'm guessing, Siva, you do some pruning. Is this something that you do? What, do you pr- what, what does pruning do? Right. Right. So is that because if you take off some of these branches that aren't producing fruit anyway, then the, the plant's got more sustenance to produce fruit where it is producing fruit? Write that down. That's a, that's the, Don Burke could have said that. That was... Um, <laughs> talk to Siva. I don't know. I think I get it. I think I get the, the, the theory. And, uh, and this is the way things work. This is how God treats us. Right, the Hebrews says that God disciplines the ones he loves. It's the same when it comes to his pruning of branches. I'm sure it's not comfortable. I'm sure that God in pruning us 
In doing so, he's allowing us to experience all kinds of discomfort, but it's for our good and it's for the good of the world because the waiting world is, is, is there to receive the blessings of God through his appointed means, his vine, his branches. So this is what he does. He prunes for our sake and for the good of others. He prunes If you can believe it, he prunes for our joy. Again, this is not how we conceive of things because we, probably more than any other culture that's ever lived, we equate like comfort with blessing. We arrange our whole lives around not experiencing any discomfort at all. The truth that Jesus wants us to know is that God will not only use discomfort, but he will make you uncomfortable so that you can produce much fruit. You ask some of the older saints in this room, and I'm sure they'll tell you that God has produced more fruit out of the difficulties they've gone through in their life, much more than the... Yeah. Jesus says it explicitly, just so you know, I'm not just trying to twist something negative into a positive. He says right at the end here, the whole reason he's telling them this about about being vines and branches and pruning and even throwing some branches into the fire. We'll get to that by the end if we have time. He says in summary of all of this, verse 11, I've told you these things so that, so that, the purpose clause, right? I've told you these things so that, that, my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. That's his purpose. Joy. So it's for our good, our joy, our happiness, our fulfillment, the abundance of our life, as he said back in chapter 10, all of these things, it's for our flourishing and It's for God's glory, for our good and for God's glory. Verse 8, my father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Our good is glory. Now, How does this look? What does this life look like? What does it it mean? Like, What would it look like if we all decided together, we want to, as much as it depends on us, be a fruitful part of God's vine? He's got this vine going around the entire world. He's got vines going out in all different churches around here in Caroline Springs. We want to be as fruitful as we can be because we want to be a means by which God blesses not only the people in the church but those around us. Like, what would it look like for us to pursue fruitfulness as branches on God's vine? What do you, like, do any passages come to mind when we talk about fruitfulness, fruit? Yell it out. Fruits of the Spirit. Yeah, that's where my mind went first. Galatians chapter 5. Um... Verse 22 to 23, do we have that there? I know you've got this memorized, but remember the fruit of the Spirit. It's interesting, these aren't just like, they're not actually fruits. He just uses the, t- the collective term fruit. 
So by that, I think he means these are not fruits that you can sort of choose and say, well, I'm really killing it on kindness, but um, I'm terrible on self-control. Now, this is just like a fr- the fruit. It's the thing that gets produced when the Spirit dwells within you, all right? So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things that are produced in the person that is connected to the vine. That's where my mind went as well, but I think it's actually probably more specific than that. That's like the big umbrella kind of theme for being kind of living a fruitful life in the spirit, but I think this is more specific, taking us back to the context of that Isaiah chapter 5 situation, right? What was going on there? Israel was meant to be fruitful, but they produced no fruit. They were meant to be just, but injustice reigned. Their failure was to live just lives. They failed to treat people as being valuable, made in God's image. They failed to stoop down and help the most vulnerable, to protect those in need. They took advantage of them rather than tending to them. This is a very specific lack of justice. We need to hear this today because churches like ours are probably not as tuned into this fact as as others. Sometimes we think that there are churches over there, they, they, they attend to the justice kind of stuff, the you know, taking care of poor people, that kind of thing, and we, we've got our own thing going on here. That, that, that's nonsense. Every branch that's connected to God's vine is called to live a life of justice. And we are just... One, I worry sometimes that the kind of sins we major on, the, the kinds of things that we really kind of shake our head at, you know, like um, things like that failure of, in sexual ethics or marriage breakdown or I don't know, you fill the blank. The kinds of things that we tend to get right up about tend not to be the things that Israel was doing that made God really right up about. We need to make sure we care about those things and about the oppression of the poor that is rampant in our own culture. You need to care that most of the women making your clothes are making about a buck a day and working without water for 20 hours a day. Don't quote me on the stats. Just go to Baptist World Aid and read about the crimes of the fashion industry and how we take advantage of those poor people so that we have more money to spend on, I don't know, whatever. Probably just more money to spend on more clothes every couple of weeks. Fast fashion, I think, gets God just as angry as some of the other things that we tend to get triggered by, what I'm saying. That's what was going on in in Israel, and it was going on in the New Testament church as well, and it was called out as a lack of fruitfulness. Let me take you to a couple of passages. First of all, Titus chapter 3. Paul says to Titus and to his church, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works 
for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. See the connection? Unfruitfulness, then, is the inverse. Unfruitfulness is not doing good works and not attending to pressing needs. Fruitfulness is, a, is identifying in the community around us, as well as the community within, pressing needs and attending to those needs, ministering God's love and provision into those areas. Colossians chapter 1 picks up on a similar theme where it says, So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. So it's even broadened out there. It's good works and knowledge of God. It's coming to church and tuning into a sermon, going to your Bible study and really diving deep and doing the good works that flow out from the knowledge of God. That's what fruitfulness looks like. It's shocking to me that we could build this church to a thousand people and it be unfruitful. If we built this church to a thousand people and had sick light shows and smoke machines and I dropped in like through the roof and had my teeth done and, right, and, and we had the best whatever entertainment and coffee and like we could, we could focus all of our attention and money on ourselves and be unfruitful according to God's economy. You can have a pumping church that is a dead vine. Now, you need to hear, we need to hear, I need to hear the warning that comes from Jesus in this passage. There's a warning that was given in that parable from Isaiah. It's a warning that is echoed in Jesus' teaching here. It echoes again in Romans chapter 11 about what happens to unfruitful branches. What happens to branches that are disconnected from the vine? And I'm out of time, so I just have to do this quick, all right? Um, and, and, and it's kind of risky just to do it quick because it's a huge thing, but I, I feel like if we don't do it, uh, it's going to be worse. All right, so here we go. Hear the warning in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 5 to 6. I will tell you, Isaiah says, is God speaking about his vineyard. I will tell you what I'm about to do in my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Acts of love. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. God's judgment comes on the fruitless vine. And Jesus says something similar in verse 6 of chapter 15. Verse 6, If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Give judgment. So we need to know and just hear the warning that is very clear in this. 
fruitless branches get cast aside. What does it mean to be a fruitless branch? He says, if anyone does not remain in me, this is obvious, right? If we're branches and our only life comes from the trunk, comes from the vine, if the branch doesn't remain on the trunk, then it dies, it withers. I want to be clear here, this is not God rejecting a branch. This is the branch rejecting God. God never rejects a branch. Remember back in chapter 6, we're looking at Jesus, the bread of life. In chapter 6, do I have it there? He says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. That's his promise. He's never going to reject you. He never casts out a branch that is connected into the vine. This is about us rejecting God. He says, if you don't remain in me, it's just cause and effect. You're going to wither, you're going to die, dead branches get thrown into the fire. So this is just, it just becomes incumbent on us, just with, with some level of trembling, to know that if we, if we disconnect from the life-giving vine, if we disconnect from the true Israel, from, from Jesus, then we will wither and we will die. Sometimes it's hard to think about people in this respect. Just think about whole churches. Whole churches disconnect themselves from the vine over the years, through the generations, and they are now coffee shops and nursery. We have a vision for this church that outlives us. We love to talk about this church in 100 years' time. Might be one or two of us left here at that point, but most of us will be dead, decomposing underground somewhere. Fruitful vine, a, a vine of blessing to the world around us. It must stay connected, it must remain, it must abide. Must make all of life all about Jesus. So, plunge in, plunge your roots, your fibers, your sinews, plunge them deep into the vine. This is going to require a daily commitment to living with Jesus, walking with Him, prayer, Bible reading. Meditation, consideration, in groups, on your own, with kids, retired, in traffic, like wherever you are, staying connected into the vine. Those who remain in me will produce much fruit, the glory of God and for the good, not only of themselves, but the world around us. The fruit of the vine is good works, and the root is our connectedness to the Lord Jesus.
I want to encourage you and do this to finish. Encourage you, because I know that as believers, there is no constant, right? There's, there's no, we never go through years, much less weeks, in just constant communion with God. That day is coming. It's going to be the new creation, and you're just going to like vibrate with God's presence day in and day out. That's what we hope for one day. That's what we pray for in the here and now. But the reality is that we waver. Some of us at the moment might be going through dry spells. We've been a little disconnected from the main vine, starting to wither a little bit. I just want to encourage you, this week is a really good week to, to reconnect the vine. The very beginning of my reconnection with my faith happened on a Maundy Thursday night at the church I grew up in. I hadn't been there for many, many, I don't know, a long time. And I turned up at the Maundy Thursday because it was really late at night and I thought I could go in the back and no one would see me and I could leave before it was finished. And I was just so confronted in a beautiful and terrible way in that service with the reality of Jesus dying for my sake. And I actually, after that service, uh, partly because partly I was kind of flirting with a girl at that was at the service as well and wanted to spend time with her. But partly, no, mostly, mostly because I was so affected, we would walk down the hill from the church to the graveyard and just lay out in the, in the, among the tombstones and talked about Jesus' death for us. I was really affected by it. So maybe that's you this year. Maybe you want to come back on Thursday night. I'm going to pray for us now and pray that God would use this week to call us back to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that you'll never reject us. I pray for these brothers and sisters that we wouldn't disconnect from you and that if we have, that we would come back to you now. Thank you that you're the kind of God who runs to meet us whenever we turn to reconnect. So, Lord, use this week, I pray, to bring us home back to you, connect us back into that vine, help us to know you and love you. We do, we do love you. We thank you for all that you're doing in this place and all that you're going to do in this coming week. Pray in Jesus.